Hello and welcome to the podcast for the February 2012 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Heather Brown from TLN. We'll hear from Heather in a moment. She's going to give us some highlights from the issue. But also just to mention that the main focus in this month's podcast is of a review about a neglected neurological disorder and that is posterior cortical atrophy. More on that after we've heard some highlights from Heather. Heather, take it away. Thanks Richard. First, I'd like to highlight a review on sudden death after ischemic stroke by Peter Soros and Vladimir Hitchinsky. As the authors say, sudden death is an important but under-recognised potential consequence of ischemic stroke. It's often related to cardiac morbidity and mortality, which can be partly explained by the shared risk factors for cerebrovascular and cardiovascular diseases. But another important factor seems to be which part of the brain is affected by the stroke, and in particular, if the lesion is in an area involved in control of the autonomic nervous system. The authors discuss the potential mechanisms that might be involved and also factors that might predict whether sudden death is likely to occur. I'd also like to highlight one of the original research papers in which David Miller and colleagues report the results of a phase 2 trial of feratograst in patients with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Feratograst is an oral drug that inhibits alpha-4 beta integrins and so has the potential to inhibit migration of white blood cells into the central nervous system. Natalizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody already approved to treat MS, also acts in this way. But alternative drugs are being investigated because natalizumab is associated with a very rare but severe side effect called progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML. The investigators randomly assigned more than 300 patients to one of three doses of feratograst or placebo. The primary endpoint was the cumulative number of new gadolinium-enhancing lesions, and after 24 weeks there was evidence of a benefit with one of the doses but not with the others. There were no cases of PML, but it's important to note that the patients were followed up for less than two years, and much larger and longer studies would be needed to confirm whether there is a link between feratograst and PML. Thanks for that, Heather. And any other highlights from the issue? Yes, also in the issue we have a randomised trial of a constant current device for deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease, an open-label study of autologous mesenchymal stem cells in patients with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, and reviews on clinically isolated syndromes and the roles of non-coding RNAs in neurodegenerative disorders. Many thanks indeed, Heather. And let's now hear from Nick Fox, one of the authors of a review in this February issue of TLN. And this concerns posterior cortical atrophy. Let's start with some definitions. What is posterior cortical atrophy? What are its clinical symptoms? Well, posterior cortical atrophy is a neurodegenerative problem. It involves the insidious onset and then progressive deterioration of cognitive problems. And these are related to deficits at the back of the brain. So by that, I mean particularly higher cortical function involving the parietal, posterior temporal, and occipital lobes. So in practical terms, what people present with is difficulty in seeing things, and yet there's nothing wrong with the uh, anterior aspects of visual processing, the eyes, ocular function, all normal. And so they present with problems recognizing what things are, minor accidents in, in the car, but they also have a constellation of parietal problems. So dyspraxia, and by that I mean the inability to perform complex movements of the hands or the feet, and yet there's nothing wrong with their motor function. They may have calculation problems or spelling problems, and these are often under-recognized, and they're very debilitating. In terms of its cause, posterior cortical atrophy can be caused by Alzheimer's disease and other disorders, but it's often viewed, isn't it, as a separate diagnostic uh, entity. How useful is it to see this as, as a separate entity? Well, you're absolutely right. There are a number of pathologies that can cause this syndrome, this deterioration of 
posterior brain function. And Alzheimer's disease is far and away the most common cause. I think what's particularly useful about understanding and defining the syndrome, seeing it as somewhat distinct, is due to its, its lack of recognition. The problem with recognizing the syndrome is one which is really uh, difficult for the patients and their carers. People often get dismissed as malingering. They're maybe sent back and forth to opticians or ophthalmologists. May, may end up with sometimes even unnecessary operations such as a cataract extraction and very frequently have bought several different pairs of glasses in an attempt to try and work out why they can't see things properly. If we can recognize the syndrome better, diagnose it better, we will be able to perform research, we'll understand its clinical features, and I think that's the only way we'll make progress on treatments. Ah, you just mentioned the key thing there, diagnosis. And you talk in the review about the need for consistent criteria for diagnosing posterior cortical atrophy. What needs to be done here? Where do we need to go from here? And how will this help patients and clinicians? At the, the first level, it is about doctors and, and patients. As, as patients become more and more aware of looking things up uh, on the web and elsewhere or reading well, we're listening to podcasts even, the recognition of the constellation of slightly unusual features a fall into a category that people recognize and can understand what the underlying causes are. That should improve early recognition. Often there's a great delay before diagnosis when, when somebody has these posterior and atypical features. One of the great tragedies is the, the distress that, that is uh, associated with a lack of diagnosis and sometimes people being dismissed uh, as making up problems or may have some, something weird and wonderful or have depression or anxiety inappropriately treated. And one striking feature I found from reading the review is the age of onset. It's, it's younger than you would think, isn't it? We're talking about people often aged between 50 and 65, so much earlier often than something like an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Yes, absolutely. There are some really striking and intriguing things about posterior cortical atrial or PCA. You're absolutely right. It has a very young onset decades before typical AD, Alzheimer's disease. That is telling us something about the syndrome and why do these people have an atypical presentation? Why do they have it so much, so much earlier? Are there different genetic causes? Will the treatments be different to typical Alzheimer's disease? So in those people who have PCA due to Alzheimer's disease, we know that in the brains they have the amyloid plaques, the neurofibrillary tangles that characterize Alzheimer's disease. But why has it affected the back of the brain? Why are those cortical areas more vulnerable? And there are some suggestions that there's a different genetic associations, so less ApoE4 association than typical late-onset AD. So there are a number of really intriguing clues that there is something else going on here that's directing the pathology to the back of the brain, that's uh, leading to these associations with different genetic markers and uh, that will be important for future research. And in terms of management and treatment, how are patients, how are the symptoms managed? Are there any basic treatments for the disorder? Again, partly because people have been either under-recognized or lumped together as just Alzheimer's disease, largely not going into the, the traditional trials. We use the symptomatic treatments, the cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine in people who we think have got Alzheimer's disease causing their, their PCA. But of course, we don't know really whether they will respond in the same way that people with typical Alzheimer's disease. But going beyond the uh, symptomatic treatments, which 
in my view, should absolutely appropriately be used in this group. There's so much more that can be done, which is often neglected, and again is a reason why it's worthwhile that this is a more recognized syndrome and the features better defined, which are all to do with appropriate support, which can range from really simple things like people who can no longer tell a, an analog or a digital clock even to get a speaking clock, to get support that is, has been developed over decades for people who have visual impairment, but often these people with cortical cause to their visual problems don't get referred for partially sighted aids, don't get the sort of support that they could. At one level, there is recognizing this so we get the appropriate medicinal treatments. At another level, it's all the support to do with the specific problems of these people who often have a lot of insight, often have a lot of anxiety, and don't get the support for their problems with visual processing or praxis or problems with spelling and calculation recognized. And a final question, just interested what you said there, particularly about the visual disturbance that obviously goes hand in hand with this disorder, presumably because the problem concerns visual processing in the occipital lobe, which is affected by the syndrome. Ophthalmologically, there's nothing going on. An ophthalmologist isn't going to see them because th their eyes are working. It's the actual processing of the visual patterns that's the well, problem. Actually, uh, a good ophthalmologist, a good opt optician will, apps, will, will pick up. But they won't see there's something wrong with the anterior visual pathways with, with the ocular function, but they will recognize, and certainly we'd hope that improved awareness will, will help with this as well, will recognize that things are, n are not right. I mean, these people have maybe misdiagnosed as having had a stroke because they have an apparent hemianopia. They have, can have very bizarre and intriguing symptoms like being able to read small print rather than large print. So a patient of mine came to clinic and said that while they were on the tube, they were trying to read it at their newspaper headline and they couldn't do it, but they were able to read it on the newspaper that the person across the carriage was holding. And those sort of things are not easily recognized as organic. And so it is important that we enhance the recognition of this condition. And, uh, and it's probably a lot more common than we've previously understood. Do we know how common it is in terms of figures? We don't have good, good figures, but some estimates are that it may, may account for 5% of young onset Alzheimer's disease, which again is a minority. And it may well be that even though we particularly see it in people in their 50s and 60s, that's the most common age in those studies that have been published, it may well be that it's more likely to be missed in older individuals. Well, it's a fascinating review and very much an under-recognized syndrome. So I'm really glad we're talking about it. And I hope all your work to raise awareness of the syndrome is successful. But in the meantime, uh, Nick Fox from University College London Institute of Neurology. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Many thanks again to Nick Fox and earlier to my colleague Heather Brown and to you all for listening. See you next month.